0: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 23. If you're going to use one of the Black Pew Bibles we have around the auditorium for our guests, you'll find that at page 626. Page 626, Luke chapter number 23 in your Bibles as we look again at a portion of the crucifixion story of our Savior. Luke chapter 23. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 26. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Matthew chapter 27. We're going to come back to Luke, but I need for you to turn to Matthew chapter 27 in your Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter number 27. What kind of people do you seem to attract or that you uh, enjoy hanging around? And does the people that, or do the people that you uh, hang around with or that you spend time with do do they open your eyes to eternal truths? Do the, does the character of those people cause you to learn some things about eternity? Someone once said, every man is my teacher. That's an important statement. We learn from everyone. We can, we should learn something from everyone that we are around or that, who are around us. And this morning, and Lord willing, one other Sunday morning we're going to focus on the people around Jesus cross the people that were there you know when you when we come to the crucifixion of Christ in the gospels preaching through the word of god i mean a preacher could spend months if not years preaching on the cross preaching on the Crucifixion experience of Jesus Christ. How do you, how do you take the, the most momentous event in the history of of the world, of even beyond the world of eternity? How do you take the most momentous event and and reduce it down to a handful of sermons? And that's a challenge that uh, every teacher of the Word of God, every preacher of the Word of God, faces when when meditating and thinking through the the truths that unfold out of the crucifixion story. And as I've been reading and thinking about the crucifixion story, I've decided that, that I'm going to take two messages to focus on the different people that were there. The part they played, the things that we learn about eternity, about life from those people. That were around Jesus Christ's cross. And then Lord willing if things continue in my heart and mind as I think they are as they are so far. Then we'll spend one message looking at what Jesus said from the cross. The seven statements Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross. And that'll be the third down the line from today. This morning I want to uh, take... The first part of what I expect to be two messages dealing with people. The people around the cross. The people that Jesus interacted with. And what we learn about life by observing those people and the situations that they found themselves in. Well, we have walked with Jesus through the ordeal of the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest. We we hid on the patio... And watched the three Jewish trials unfold. And learned that the real issue of Jesus' death was the fact that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. And the Jewish Supreme Court, called the Great Sanhedrin, hated him for declaring himself to be God. They found him guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. Then we followed the Sanhedrin as they took Jesus to the Roman government and turned him over to the political powers that be, Pilate and Herod. And we followed Jesus back and forth between their different places of, uh, of operation. And we, and we saw Jesus Christ endure three Roman trials. And we learned That Jesus Christ was absolutely innocent of any crime worthy of death. Declared by two Roman leaders that there was absolutely no reason for Jesus Christ to lose his life that day. And yet, because politics doesn't care about truth, politics only cares about the outcome of what it wants that the political powers met God, acknowledged He was totally innocent, but murdered Him anyway. And the political power of Rome delivered Jesus to the executioners, for the executioners to put Him to death. Before Jesus reaches Calvary, He interacts with some different people, and we learned some valuable lessons from those people about life and about about people's interactions with Jesus Christ himself. And this morning, we're going to look at three players in the drama, three categories, if you please, of people that interacted with Jesus Christ as he was moving from the from Pilate's turning Him over for execution and actually arriving at the site where they will nail Him to the cross. Three categories. And the first category is not mentioned in the same way in Luke's gospel as it is in Matthew's gospel. So I wanted us to read from Matthew 27 before we turn to Luke. And let's consider the first category of people around Jesus Christ as he approached the cross. And the first category would be a category of cruel, professional killers. Cruel, professional killers. Matthew indicates that after Pilate's final decision, Jesus is taken into the common hall of the praetorium for a time of cruel sport before he carries his cross To Calvary. And so, Matthew 27, in verse number 26, the Bible says, Then released he Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying Hail! King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and they took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus has been through a lot throughout the night. He was kept up all night long. The Jewish leaders, the great Sanhedrin, after finding him guilty of blasphemy for declaring himself to be God, they made sport of him. They blindfolded him, they slapped him, demanding that he reveal who it was that slapped them since he's God and could tell that without seeing it. They mocked him. We saw that he was taken to Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate and and Pilate said he was innocent and, and yet the Jewish Sanhedrin had got enough people in Jerusalem at that early morning hour to demand Pilate that he crucify Jesus rather than letting him go. And Pilate, back and forth with the Jewish people, Pilate said, he's innocent. Why would I kill an innocent man? And he said, are you thirsty for blood? I'll beat him. And he beat him. He had him scourged. He's innocent, so we'll scourge him. And maybe you'll get enough of your bloodlust satisfied that you won't demand his execution. Jesus has gone through all of that. And finally, Pilate comes to the end of his efforts to be able to find a way to release Jesus. But the Jewish leaders have him over a political barrel. And he knows that he cannot allow this powder cake to explode. And so he finally consents. To murder Jesus Christ because of the political pressure he was under with the Jewish people. But before they crucify him, the soldiers take him into the common hall. And they begin to mock him. Perhaps they had heard what he had gone through. Perhaps some of the soldiers had gone with, had been with Jesus in, in uh, the high priest's uh, location. And, and saw them mocking him there. Uh, perhaps that's where they got the idea to mock him again as Roman soldiers. They, they call together the whole band of soldiers. And, and they're going to have a game. They're going to make sport of Jesus Christ. And so they get a, a crown. They said the, the great Sanhedrin wants him dead because he claims to be king of the Jews. God himself. Let's make him king. And someone went out to one of the, the, the bushes that grow, the trees that grow in that part. I've, I've, I've been there. I've been at the, at, the, uh, at the location where Jesus went coming into Jerusalem. I, I, they, they showed us the trees with two, three inch long uh, spikes on them. And, and someone went out and cut a branch off a tree and they, they wove it into a, a circle and they took that that crown. We're going to crown him king. And they put that crown on his head and they crammed those long spikes down into his skull and they mocked him. They laughed at him. He thinks he's a king. And they mocked. Someone put a robe over his back, his beaten, scourged, raw back. They put a a scarlet robe on his back. Maybe one of, one of uh, some have suggested it may have been, that they're in the praetorium, they're, they're where Herod uh, operates from, or I'm sorry, where Pilate operates from. And, and some have suggested it was an old, worn out, faded, uh, cast off robe from Pilate himself. And they threw it on his shoulders, making him royalty. He thinks he's a king, we'll crown him. We'll, we'll put a, a royal robe on his back. Then someone grabbed a stick and put it in his hand. Give him a scepter. Let the king have his scepter. And then they they prostrated themselves on the ground and they bowed to the king and they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They laughed at him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they took the stick back out of his hand and they hit him over the head repeatedly with with his scepter. And then they began to spit in his face. They began to pluck out his beard. Who Who are these men? These are Roman soldiers. These are the elite killers of Rome. These are the elite men from the Praetorium Guard. These men have crucified hundreds of people. They had no ounce of pity in them. They were cruel professional murderers. They have no tinge of conscience. They are heartless professional killers. This is all a game to them, this is their fun. This is like turning on a sports game on television and rooting for your team. And they make sport of Jesus Christ. This cruel sport is akin to the gladiators in the, in the arenas and, and, the, and the people in the stands watching. More blood, more pain, more misery... This is so much fun to watch the gore and the blood and the pain and the suffering. This is sickening. This is bullying to the extreme. And our world still has people just like that today. Cruel professional killers. Who don't care about anyone else's suffering and pain. They're the polar opposite of what Pastor Ryan spoke about, having a compassionate heart to come and help people in need. These people are sick. We still have them. We even have them in America. We've seen them on our TV screens over the last year. Just last week here in Virginia, a police officer had to use his own body to cover up a student in a high school in Virginia is a mob of other high school students were trying to beat him. And a police officer had to put his own body over him and absorb the blows to protect that teenager. Who were, who were the ones wanting to beat him? Who were the ones that were kicking? Who were the ones... We have people in America like that today. We've seen the video clips. They don't care about anybody else. That's one of the groups that were around Jesus Christ. This is the raw depravity of the human heart. Who in its wickedness descends down to a level of depravity to where they get joy out of causing somebody else pain. They find it fun to hurt others. reminded me of the last chapter of the book of Proverbs where King Lemuel said, I I remember what my mama taught me when I was a boy. As he reiterated some of the lessons his mom taught him when he was just a little boy, now he's a king, he's King Lemuel. And, And now he's reminding people of his day the lessons his mama taught him when he was little. Four lessons. One of the four lessons that Lemuel's mom taught him was stand up for the one being picked on. Don't join the crowd hurting somebody. Act. Get between the one being hurt and the ones doing the hurting. Do something. Don't just stand there and watch. Watch someone suffer. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9, Lemuel said that his mom taught him, open thy mouth for the dumb in the calls of all such as are appointed to destruction. The dumb, the one who don't have a voice for themselves, who can't stand up for themselves. Stand up. Do something. Don't just stand there and watch. Say, I don't want to endanger my life. Are you really that sick? Are you really that heartless? You'll stand and watch somebody else be bullied and beaten, and you'll watch and won't do anything because you're so filled with yourself that you won't help somebody else, a fellow human being. Lemuel's mom said, Lemuel, open your mouth. Do something. Open thy mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Well, that's the first category. They're cruel professional killers. They have no heart and they find it to be a lot of fun to hurt other people. And we can learn that there are people like that in our world. And it takes people that have some common decency and courage to stand up and do something when somebody is being abused and hurt and you know one of the one of the great and and justified accusations against some groups of christianity today is that they can be aware that abuse has occurred and don't do anything about it just get the person another job in another state Just move the person out from where we're related to the situation and cover it up so no one will find out. The abused person? Well, tough luck. Too bad. You were abused. But we have a reputation to protect. When we don't care about other people who are hurt and abused. We risk being identified with the category of people who found great joy in Jesus Christ's suffering and were even a part of the suffering. I find that to be a challenge to me to care about people, to defend people when they don't have a voice for themselves, to try to help people when they're being abused, rather than looking the other way and not getting involved. There's another category of people. Now, this category is, is, is so different than the first category. This, this is a guy, and I'm going to go back to, to Luke now. this is a guy who's a stranger. He, he, he just he comes out of nowhere. He's a stranger in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us in verse number 26 of Luke 23, verse number 26, as they led him away, as they led Jesus away, they laid upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now here's a second category of people. Now there's only one in this category in the story. This is a stranger out of Africa. You see it was the Roman custom that they would require a condemned prisoner to carry their own cross to the point, to the place of execution. So, since Jesus is going to be executed, he is a cross put upon him and he is trying to carry that cross to the place of execution. That was a standard procedure. They would take and write the crime that the person had committed on a placard and hang it around his neck, and he would, uh, and, and he would be carrying his cross, and people would see why he's being executed as he would carry his cross. Jesus Christ begins to carry his cross, But apparently, due to the ordeal that he had endured over the previous 48 hours, he could not carry the heavy cross all the way to the place of execution. At least he couldn't carry it fast enough to keep up pace with the crowd that were going. There were three being crucified, but only one of them, do we know, went through the ordeal that Jesus went through. So perhaps they were stronger and able to move a little faster. Jesus was not. Now, we don't know whether Jesus was just carrying the cross piece or the entire cross. Uh, There there are arguments for both. We really don't know what Jesus Christ was carrying. Luke makes the statement that Simeon, I see Cyrenian coming out of the country, that he might bear it after Jesus. And, and so it is suggested, and some believe, that Jesus actually had the entire cross, both the cross piece and the upright piece, and he was under the cross piece at the front, and he's dragging the end of the cross on that rough cobblestone street. and so it's bouncing on the stones, and he's dragging it. You, anyone knows Anyone that knows anything about wheels know. That if you don't have wheels and you're just dragging dead weight across a rough surface, that's a lot harder than if you put something under it, make it easier to carry. And so, as they were impatient with Jesus because he couldn't keep up, and tradition says, the Bible doesn't, but tradition says, Jesus actually collapsed under the weight of the cross and fell to the ground. We don't know for sure if that's true or not. But we do know that Jesus Christ was incapable of of carrying or dragging the cross to the point of execution, at least at the speed that the Roman soldiers were requiring. And so they saw a stranger. He, he was, as they were leaving the city of Jerusalem, he was coming into the city out of the country. In all likelihood, he is a man that just showed up at that moment. He'd been traveling to Jerusalem, perhaps to the Passover feast that day. And as Jesus is dragging, perhaps, or carrying, trying to carry or drag the cross out of the city, Simon is coming into the city from the country. And the Roman, one of the Roman soldiers saw him and said, Hey, you! Get over here! And the Bible says that, that Simon... That, he, that they laid on him the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Some have suggested that Jesus was probably still under the front of the cross. They picked up the part that was dragging, and they put that on Simon's shoulders, so he was after Jesus or behind Jesus, and they carried the cross. Some believe that Jesus Christ didn't carry any of the cross, and Simon carried the entire cross. We don't know, but we do know that Simon is behind Jesus... And he is bearing the weight of the cross for it to be taken out to the place of crucifixion. The details really aren't significant. It's the horrible playing out of this travesty of judgment that is crystal clear in the Word of God. And yet, this stranger provides for us a category of interest, he has a name. Why does he have a name? We don't know the name of the centurion who at the end said, surely this is the Son of God. He's just a nameless centurion. We don't know the names of the four soldiers that were dispatched to to execute Jesus, to crucify him. We don't know their names. There's lots of people around the cross that we don't know the names of. The majority of the people that we do know the names of are the women that were there. Jesus, the word of God was careful to chronicle the, those women by name. Here's a man that's named. A, a seeming nobody. A stranger that just happened to be coming into Jerusalem at just this moment. And so we know he has a name. Why does God mention his name? What is important about him? Why does God draw attention to this man By name. When so many of the people around the cross remain unnamed. What's so special about Simon that God gave him a name? Verse number 26, we're told he not only has a name, he has a location. He's Simon a Cyrenian. Not only does he have a name, he has a city where he's from. Cyrene is in the northern coast of Africa, right on the Mediterranean Sea in Libya. We know he's from North Africa, from the Mediterranean coast. Historians tell us that there was a sizable group of Jews who lived in Cyrene. It was a Jewish settlement. There was a lot of Jews from there in Cyrene. And so we know that he came to Jerusalem on Passover Day, as an individual, and Simon is a Jewish name, coming from a Jewish settlement in North Africa, he arrives on Passover Day to take part in the Passover observance. Now, Mark, when he wrote this story, recorded this story, he not only tells us the name Simon from Cyrene. He tells us he's a dad. And he has two boys, Rufus and Alexander, in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Now, that's interesting. What is so important about this guy that he not only has this stranger, this nobody who shows up as Jesus Christ is dragging his cross or carrying his cross out of the city. Who is this guy that... God makes a point to tell us his name. God makes a point of telling us the city he's from. And even telling us that he's a dad with two sons, Rufus and Alexander. By the way, when Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, he is in Rome. Most believe that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark from the city of Rome. So from the city of Rome, Mark writes the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Mark includes not only the name of this stranger that carried Jesus' cross, but he also tells us that the man has has a family. And And then when Paul wrote the church in Rome, he said, hey, Say hi to Rufus for me. There's an interesting series of dots to connect here. You see, this person who just happened to carry the cross had a name, had a city, and had a family that God wanted us to be aware of. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says there were some there from Cyrene on the day of Pentecost hearing Peter preach and hearing people speak in tongues and languages from the country that they came from. Languages that they knew that Peter didn't know. And one of those languages was from the city of Cyrene. And on that day, 3,000 people got saved. I wonder how many of them from Cyrene got saved that day. then in Acts chapter eleven we 're told that when the gospel reached Antioch, you remember antioch is, is up above in fact let 's go ahead and uh, let 's go ahead and get that first slide there uh, we 're we're seeing an interesting situation between Jerusalem and a man who left Cyrene and came to Jerusalem and happened to be there at the very moment. That Jesus needed some help carrying the cross. And then we find out when the gospel reached Antioch. In Acts chapter 11. Verse number 19 to 21. Some of the preachers that helped start that church were from. Cyrene. Here are some people from Cyrene on the day of Pentecost. Who left and went back home to Cyrene and started a church. And the church produced preachers. And some of those preachers left Cyrene as missionaries and went to Antioch. And they helped plant a church in Antioch. And when Barnabas and Paul show up in Antioch. They find some of the preachers in that church. Are from Cyrene. And then when Paul wrote when, when, uh, when the, I'm sorry, when, when the church in Antioch, in Acts 13, when the church of Antioch got ready to send Paul and Barnabas up to Galatia and across to Europe on their missionary journeys, one of the preachers who laid hands on Barnabas and Paul and sent them out was a preacher from Cyrene. And then the apostle Paul later In the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 13, Paul writes the church at Rome a letter. And in chapter 16, verse 13, he says, hey, say hi to Rufus. He's a chosen member of the church there. And say hi to his mom. Who's his mom? If Rufus is the son of Simon... And Paul is saying, say hi to your mom. That would make his mom the mother of Simon, right? So say hi to Rufus and your mom. Who has been like a mother to me. Your mom and my mom. This family had interaction with the Apostle Paul throughout his missionary journeys. To the degree that Paul said, she's like a mom to me. We have... An amazing picture here. Isn't this just like God? In his sovereignty he picks a nobody traveling from Africa to Jerusalem. To walk into Jerusalem at the very moment. That he could become a part of the drama of the execution of Jesus Christ. And then we have to start making assumptions because we just don't know. I wonder... If carrying Jesus' cross and watching how Jesus Christ reacted, remember Peter told us that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. No criminal has ever been executed and acted like Jesus acted on the cross. I just wonder if Simon... There at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Walked away at the end of that day shaking his head saying nobody has ever been executed like that. I wonder if he hung around Jerusalem and was there on the day of Pentecost. When Peter got up and preached the gospel and 3,000 souls got saved. I wonder since people from Cyrene were there on that day and... Most likely he got saved that day. I wonder if Simon got saved that day on the day of Pentecost. Then I wonder if Simon left and went back home and told his wife the gospel and she got saved. I wonder if he led his two boys to Christ. I wonder if he was part of a church plant on a foreign mission field of Cyrene. We know a church was planted because we know some of those They got saved and trained in Cyrene, went as missionaries to Antioch. I wonder if some of the ones that Simon had reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ in his old hometown became missionaries and went back to to Antioch. And there in Antioch, they became church planting missionaries who actually laid their hands on Barnabas and Paul and sent them out as missionaries on their three missionary journeys. And then, and then, I wonder if, if Simon's wife and son Rufus went as a part of a church planning team of missionaries to Rome and planted a church in Rome. And, and then later, when Paul wrote to church that had been started in Rome by somebody, he said, say hi to Rufus for me. Isn't it just like a sovereign God to take a nobody... A Jew traveling from Africa to Israel on Passover to observe the Passover feast. Isn't it just like God to save their souls? Send them back home. See them reach their wife and their kids with the gospel. See them reach others in Cyrene with the gospel and plant a church there. Have some people in that church surrender to missions. And send them out on a missionary journey to Antioch. To plant a church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas will then later be sent out. Isn't it just like God to take another team of church planting missionaries from the church in Cyrene. To include Simon's wife and son. And send them up to Rome to plant a church. So that Paul would later write to the church at Rome and say. Say hi to Rufus and to Rufus' mom. God has a plan to use people for his glory all over the world. And for some reason, God put some select references in the New Testament that would enable us to identify a family and maybe connect some dots and realize that God knew what he was doing When he put in the mind of the Roman soldier, get that guy to carry the cross. But you know what's something even more amazing than that? God has a plan for you. To use you in gospel advance. God has a plan for your children. To use your children in gospel advance. Wouldn't it be just like God? to have a plan for you and for your children to use them in the advance of the gospel around the world. And maybe a hundred years from now someone will be piecing together missionary letters and little fragments of statements and say hey, look here. Look at, look at And and they begin to they begin to connect the dots and they Realize, look at what God did. How amazing is our God to use people to advance the gospel all over the world. He had a plan for Simon. So he told us his name. He had a plan for Simon. So he told us what city he was from. He had a plan for Simon. So he told us what his kids' names were. And then he put little tidbits In the New Testament, so we could connect the dots and wonder could it be, could it be that that's what God actually did? And then begin to wonder could it be that God is doing that today? He's doing that today in our lives. He has a plan for our kids, He has a plan for us to be involved in gospel advance. To get the word of God to others. Let me close with one third category. The third category is unknown mourners. Unknown mourners. Verse number 27 tells us that there followed him a great company of people and of women who, which also bewailed and lamented him. These are perhaps the professional mourners. We don't have that in our culture but in biblical culture, they had professional mourners that you could hire to come to your funeral and wail. They would show up. They would beat their chests. That's what the word bewailed means in verse 27. Bewailed and lamented is a cry, a scream, an agonizing bitter cry from the heart. People were hired to do this. To come and And add to the wailing and mourning of a situation that is sad. The Bible speaks of that in Jeremiah chapter 9 when God was getting ready to judge Israel. God said, Consider ye and call the mourning women that they may come. And let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids gush out with waters. For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. God was getting ready to judge, and God wanted, God told Jeremiah, call, call together the professional mourners and let them come and wail and, and beat their bodies and scream and cry. We don't know for sure exactly who this group of people were. They could have been professional mourners and wailers, or they could have just been genuine people who were really upset at what had happened. ...to Jesus Christ that day was happening. Hey, by the way, did you know that throughout all of the gospel records... ...there's not one reference to any woman ever speaking unkindly of Jesus Christ... ...or about Jesus Christ? There's not one gospel account of any instance of any woman who ever opposed Jesus Christ? (laughs) There's nobody in the history of humanity that did more and has done more... ...to elevate the status and dignity of women than Jesus Christ... The word woman occurs 30 times in Matthew, 19 times in Mark, 19 times in John, but 43 times in Luke. And in Luke, there's going to be a lot of women named by name at the cross. There's not one male follower of Christ named, but there's a lot of women named by name. Here we have a group of women, and they're wailing, and they are beating their bodies, And crying and screaming. But here's what I want you to go away with this morning. I want you to notice how Jesus reacted to their wailing. He said in verse number 28. But Jesus turning unto them said. Daughters of Jerusalem. Weep not for me. We might say in our common vernacular. Stop it. Stop it. This is shocking. Here are people that are weeping for Jesus because of what he's gone through and Jesus turns to them, calls them out as a group and says, stop it. Don't do that. Don't weep for me. This is amazing. That Jesus Christ at this moment of, of, of the culmination of all that he's gone through and here's some people that feel really bad about what he's gone through And Jesus Christ turns to them and tells them, don't do that. Jesus is so not about himself. Jesus is so not about me, my pain, my suffering. Jesus is the one who said that no man takes my life, I lay it down. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, John's gospel says. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. No one's taking his life. He's laying his life down of his own choice and desire. Stop weeping for me. There's nothing to feel sorry for me about. There's nothing to be upset that I'm suffering. This is my choice. This is what I'm doing of my choice. Stop weeping for me. But yet there's more than that. What did he tell them to do? He said, but weep for yourselves and your children. Here's the crux of the gospel. We present a gospel... That answers the need of an individual who ought to be weeping over their own sinful condition and future judgment. And Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for your own selves. And then Jesus went on to explain it. And he said, the days are coming In the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and so forth. They'll call to the mountains fall on us, and the hills cover us. You see, Jesus Christ is focused on the future judgment that's going to send us all to hell. He's focused on the judgment that people don't grasp. They don't get it. He turned to the women who were wailing, and he said, stop it. You don't get it. I chose this. You need to think of what you're facing. You need to think of where you're heading. You need to focus on what's in your future. You need to know the judgment's coming to you. You do understand that 35 years after Jesus said that, The Romans came in and murdered a million Jews in a matter of a few days. Jesus said, you need to focus on your future. The judgment of God that's going to destroy you. And when it happens, when a million Jews are murdered by the Romans. Now, to the people in a biblical culture, bearing a baby was a sign that God had blessed them. To be barren was a curse. And that's why we read stories in the Bible of people who were barren and it was a horrible thing to go through. And they begged God to let them have a baby. And having a baby was viewed as being the the ultimate of god's blessing in their life and said if you can have a whole bunch of them if you can have a quiver full of them that's just the abundance of god's blessing but jesus says the day is coming in which the judgment is going to be so bad that instead of considering barrenness a curse you're going to consider barrenness a blessing you're going to be so thankful you don't have any kids you're going to be so thankful that you never bore a baby because some of those babies are going to be eaten in the horrors of the judgment of 70 AD when starvation overtook the jewish population and they were eating one another's babies some of those babies are going to be you're to, as a mom you're going to watch your kids be viciously murdered by the romans you're going to be glad you didn't have any babies When this judgment comes. You see Jesus focuses us on reality. Instead of sympathy. He didn't want sympathy. He said stop crying for me. I don't want your sympathy. I chose this. What I do want. Is for you to be honest with yourself. Honest with what's in your future. Honest with the judgment of God. That's coming down the pike. Honest enough. To make sure you're not in that crowd of a million Jews murdered by the Roman people. And then Jesus ended by a strange statement. He said, if they do this in a green tree, what will be done in a dry? What what, what does that mean? If, If the Romans will treat me the way you've seen them treat me this morning... If the Romans will treat me the way you're going to see them treat me. As they nail me to the cross. Knowing I'm innocent. If the Romans will do that to me. In my innocence. Think of what they're going to do to the city of Jerusalem. When they come back in 70 AD. And consider all of you rebels against Caesar. And they massacre you. You think. They're treating me bad. They think I'm innocent. And they're treating me this way. Wait till you see how they treat you and your kids. When they think you're rebels against Caesar. You see, this group of mourners teaches us something about people. And that is a lot of times we just don't get it when it comes to Jesus Christ. We sympathize. We Warm hearts. How could they do that to Jesus Christ? And we sympathize. And Jesus Christ, in a change of events that's shocking, says, stop sympathizing with me. I chose this. If You're going to weep. Weep for yourself. Because you're facing judgment from Almighty God. Three categories of people. We can observe the professional... Killers and realize there are people that just hate people, and it's horrible. We need to stand up for the innocent that are being picked on, but there are people who really do hate people and get get some kind of sadistic joy out of hurting people. We need to do something about that when we see that. We can look at Simon and say, "Wow." What a sovereign God to put all those pieces of the puzzle together and have such a plan for the evangelizing of the world. And we can learn from that that God has a plan for me. And he has a plan for my kids. He has a plan for my family. God, what's your plan for me evangelizing the world? And then we can look at the crowd of people who live around us in America who are sympathetic. They're not like the professional killers. They're heartless and cruel They really do have sympathy when people are hurt. But they don't get it. They really do have sympathy when somebody is treated wrongly. But they just don't get it. It's not about sympathy. It's about the judgment of God that's coming. Do you understand God? Do you understand sin? Do you understand God's love? Do you understand God's choice to go through everything he went through? Because he loves sinners and he wants to save them from the judgment of God in the future. Those are the people that are our greatest target for evangelism. People who just don't get it. We need to love them and we need to teach them truth. We need to help them get it so they can come to Jesus Christ.